Welcome to episode three of Your Anxiety Playground, a podcast that I hope will really help you with your anxiety, help you be able to change your relationship with anxiety and feel more empowered to face your anxiety and even be able to play around with it and not be as limited as maybe you have been uh, if anxiety is a part of your life or if you have any anxiety disorders. My name is Nate Page. I am a licensed psychologist and a group psychotherapist, and I work with anxiety day to day with my individual therapy clients and my group therapy clients, and it's something that I really enjoy doing, and I really value seeing people make the changes that they make. And I think one of the reasons why I value it so much is because anxiety has been such a part of my history, my story. And so in this episode, I want to just open up and and share about my journey with anxiety and do so hopefully in a way that's helpful for you and in whatever point you're at in your journey with your anxiety. (coughs) Growing up, I was a pretty anxious kid. One of my earliest memories with anxiety is watching The Muppet Show. And I remember the character Animal, that's the character that plays the drums, it just terrified me. He, he, like when he came on screen, I would have to leave the room. And I just, I have a memory of just going into the kitchen. I think my mom was in there and I just felt, I mean, it felt like life or death. It felt like my life was in danger. And, and I think it was, you know, looking back on it and the the time I couldn't articulate this, but I think it was because animal was so like unpredictable and his movements were so erratic and it just felt dangerous to me. And I remember kind of like telling my mom and she, of course, probably knew that something was up. Um, but I, I never really worked through that. And for, so for a while, I was really scared of animal. I have four children now, and it's been fascinating watching them with movies. And, and this is, it just happens, I think, with probably most every kid where they get scared. And of course they do. Of course they get scared. That's such a human normal thing. Um, but I have a lot of empathy for that. And, and with our children, I think, I think we've done a pretty good job and, and none of them have really those enduring fears. Um, and, and they don't have the nightmares. And in fact, they probably watch uh, a lot of scary things that are way, um, scarier than most people would let their kids. But and so we're maybe leaning too far in that direction, but, but they do get exposed to it, but I'm with them and we talk through it and, and their anxiety does go down. So, so, um, so I think it, it is a real benefit in that way. And I did not have that growing up. So I stayed stuck in that anxiety. Um, and then it came out in so many different ways. I, I have another pretty early memory of being scared of a flushing toilet. And so I would have to flush the toilet and then just run out of the room quickly and I even knew at the time, I remember thinking, I'm not scared of getting sucked into the toilet. But now looking back, I recognize that I was just scared of the feelings that I had because somehow my anxiety latched to that. I think it was the really loud sound. And maybe at one point I had the thought that I could get sucked in or there'd be something dangerous that would happen. But even though I knew there wasn't anything dangerous, I would still get really anxious. So I'd have to flush the toilet and get out of the room as quickly as possible to kind of manage that anxiety and to avoid it as much as possible. I had a a fear of the dark, which I think is very, very common. I had that up through my teenage years where I'd have to, you know, reach into a a room before I'd go in and try to find the light with my hand and turn it on. 
Um, and then I would feel more safe going in. And of course, that fear of the dark is very adaptive for humans in most settings. It's not as applicable now that we have light bulbs, but, but um, I think a lot of our human history, being scared of the dark was a really good thing to try to avoid that. Um, I also had a monster under my bed. I had that experience for a number of years. And again, I knew there wasn't a monster on my, under my bed. I didn't really think there was, but I would be anxious and there would be the feeling if I got too close to my bed, there might be something that would reach out and grab my leg. So there was the unknown of what was under my bed and I would be anxious about it. So I'd have to, you know, at night reach into my room and turn on the lights and then I would have to run and jump onto my bed. And then I remember for a lot of time, I don't know, it seems like maybe even a couple of years, I had this long stick that then I would use to reach across the room and be able to turn the, the lights off. And I, I don't think I ever told my parents about the monster in the bed or even my fear of uh, the dark or even the fear of the toilet. I should ask them to know if they, to see if they have any memory of that or if they even knew. But I, so I kept that to myself. And, um, and so I never really had someone that helped me face those fears and be able to work through them. I don't know that I would have been diagnosed with anything clinically as a young child. Maybe I would have, but I, I was a pretty anxious kid. My, my sympathetic nervous system would activate you know, quite frequently. But where it started to become disordered, at least for sure, was in fifth grade. And so what happened in fifth grade, I remember I was lying in bed at night and I remember I was even just lying on my back and I had my hands on my chest and I was going to, to sleep. And I had this thought that, oh, maybe I'm going to throw up. And it was kind of weird because I didn't really feel like throwing up, but there must have been some sensation that I was noticing in my body. So I remember just thinking, well, I'll get up and go to the bathroom. I don't think I need to, but I might as well. And I went to the bathroom and I did throw up. <laughs> and I remember we had pizza for dinner. Uh, that's something that's seared into my memory. And sometimes you have that when you, you throw up as a kid, you very clearly see what you ate. But I didn't feel that sick. And I remember I went right back to bed and I fell asleep and... I felt fine. The next day I woke up and I felt fine. I remember going to school. And then I think it was after school. I told my sister, my older sister, a couple of years older than me. And I said, I threw up last night. And I remember her saying, no, you didn't throw up last night. If you would have thrown up last night, we'd all know about it. Or mom and dad would know about it. And, you know, you'd be really sick. And so I remember she didn't believe me, um, but I did throw up. I just felt fine. Um, but then that night, Going to bed, I started to feel scared. Like, oh no, what if I throw up again? And what if I throw up without really knowing that I'm going to throw up? Because last night I wasn't feeling that sick and I haven't really felt that sick. So what if I don't even know I'm going to throw up and I do? And I started to get really anxious. And then, I mean, at least for me and for a lot of people, that anxiety, when it starts to grow, their nausea can be one of the, the symptoms. And like we mentioned in the first episode, usually that's because the blood is moving away from your digestive tract because your blood is being pulled to more of your major muscle groups with the fight, flight, or freeze response. Your body's getting ready to move, to act. And so nausea would become a part of it, or at least anything that was going on inside my body, I could interpret as that. And that was a really rough night. I didn't it took me a long time to fall asleep. And I remember, I think I even went to the bathroom a few times thinking, oh, I'm going to throw up again like last night, but I didn't. 
And then the next morning I woke up and I went to school and then I had the thought again, like, oh no, what if I throw up here at school and I don't know that I'm going to throw up. So I had to find the garbage can. And this, this started a several, it was probably like four year phobia of throwing up where so much of the day I would be thinking about it. I'd be scared of it. And I'd have the thought of, oh no, what if I throw up? So anytime I would go into a room, you know, go to a new classroom or go into a room at church, or I don't know if we were at a museum or going to the library with family or whatever it might be, I had to find where, where is the garbage can here? And as soon as I found a garbage can, then, oh, I would feel a little bit of a reduction in that anxiety. But, um, and I think it was probably, probably a week after that night where I did throw up, I had my first panic attack. I was sitting in music class in fifth grade and I was having that very, you know, routine. Oh no, I, I, I'm, I, what if I throw up in here? So I have to find the garbage can, but then I feel really anxious and oh no. And I, I would be in and out of that place. So I'm feeling nauseated and I couldn't, I couldn't focus on what my teachers were saying a lot of the time because I was so much stuck in that phobia. And then just because it was me and a lot of people are like this, I never told anyone about this. So I was really stuck in it by myself, but I was in music class and it really started to spiral. And I remember just raising my hand quickly and it saying, can I go to the bathroom? Can I go to the bathroom? And the teacher let me and I went to the bathroom and I had a full blown panic attack in the bathroom stall, my elementary school. And I honestly don't remember it that well. Um, I think I've kind of blocked it out in some ways, but I remember it was that, that experience of, I am going to die. This is so horrible. Something so terrible is going on for me. This is it. This is the end. Um, cause I was just so panicked and, and that happens a lot of time. If you, if you don't know people that have their first panic attack will oftentimes end up in the hospital thinking that they're having a heart attack or something really, really bad or scaring is scary is going on with their body that they are, are dying. So I, I had that and it probably lasted 10 to 15 minutes, which is pretty normal for a panic attack. And then I, I calmed down a little bit and I went to the front office and I told them that I was sick and my mom came and they, I mean, I remember having the bag, like a, a grocery bag or something in case I threw up. And in hindsight, looking back, it, it was very clear that I was just having a panic attack and any, I wasn't sick at all, but I was so scared of throwing up. But in the moment, I really thought that I was sick and my parents thought that I was sick. And I went home and I, I was just so, so anxious for the rest of the day. And I, I clung to that garbage bag and... And I did have this thing too, where I started to at night because that's when it would usually get really worse. Cause that's when I threw up at first, I would have to have a bucket just in case I threw up. And I don't, I don't know that I have a memory of how the OCD started, but I would develop these compulsions that were anxiety management techniques. So I, th I think for a while I, I didn't step on cracks growing up. You know, the phrase, don't step on a crack or you'll break your mother's back. Um, but that became a real thing after this fear of throwing up came because I would feel a little bit anxious about the thought of stepping on a crack. So I would work really hard to not step on cracks. I would repeat phrases in my head and I would even repeat words in my head and I would have to repeat words a certain number of times. And I remember stop was one of the words I would say in my head, stop, 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 stop. And I would get to where I would have to say the word stop in my head 12 times before I would finally 
have that reduction in anxiety for a moment. I would have to touch my body symmetrically sometimes. For example, if I like bumped my right foot, then I'd have to bump my left foot in just the same way. And if I did that, then my anxiety would go down. If I didn't, or if I couldn't bump my other foot in the same way, oh, the anxiety would start to increase. And of course, I mean, I didn't think in this way, but but I would be scared that I would have a panic attack. So I'd have to really up the ante on whatever the compulsion was to manage that anxiety. And then one, I mean, there were, there were a number of things like that. Um, but one of the big things was, and so I, I, we would pray and I learned how to pray growing up. And so I would pray at night before going to bed and I would just beg. I would plead. I'd say, please, 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 please make it so that I don't throw up. And it got wrapped into this thing where I would have to say the word please a certain number of times. And it felt like, oh, if I said please enough, then it would really matter. Then God would maybe make it so that I wouldn't throw up. And I at least have a memory, and I don't know for sure, but I have a memory in my mind that I think I got up to like 67 times that I would have to say the word please. And this, of course, you know, grew over the years, as I would say my prayers at night, but I would have to count my head please, 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 please. And then when I, you know, would hit, you know, 20 pleases, then I would finally feel that anxiety reduction. And then it got up to, you know, of course, 67 is at least the number I have in my mind, but it was, it was high. It was at least in the sixties. Um, so hopefully, I mean, if you don't have obsessive compulsive disorder, hopefully this is giving you a sense of what it's like for someone with that. If you do have obsessive compulsive disorder, I'm sure this is resonating for you. And even if you don't, anyone with anxiety can resonate with these things. And, and I, I, do, I do school assembly programs with elementary school, and I've even done middle and, and high school. Uh, uh, last month, I was in Pennsylvania with a school district there in, in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And so I did six school assembly programs. And it's, I, I usually share this story about me with anxiety. And I do it because inevitably there's somebody in the audience that doesn't yet know that they're struggling with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. But as I share these things, the light bulbs go on for these few students. And I talk about a lot of other things and the light bulbs go on for different people with, you know, different mental health disorders that we're talking about. But OCD, it's a really fun one because lots of times people don't know, but the light bulbs will go on as they hear me talk about it. And they're like, oh. That's what's going on for me. And that can be really empowering and helpful for someone to recognize this is OCD. That's what I'm facing. And then um, you can get the appropriate treatment for that. So that's one of the things that might happen with this, me sharing these stories, is that you'll recognize things in you that you hadn't known before and be able to get help in ways that you haven't had before. And so this, this lasted quite a while that I had these OCD, anxiety coping tendencies. And so for sure, if I would have gone to therapy and I never did, I would have been diagnosed with OCD. It was pretty clear cut and dry. Um, and, and one of the things that I do share in these school assembly programs is at least the data from NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, where the average delay between the onset of mental health sim symptoms and the time when someone goes in and actually gets treatment is about eight to 10 years. So that for sure played out for me. I had a panic attack in fifth grade. There was very clear OCD. Um, I had this fear of vomiting that was really consuming a lot of my energy day in, day out. 
And the first time I went to therapy, I was 22 years old. I was in college and went to my college counseling center. So I had years and years and years of untreated anxiety. And then I, I also developed uh, depression um, in my later teens and early 20s. And so, um, so that's one of the reasons why I do these school assembly programs, especially with elementary school students, is hopefully help those light bulbs go on and for, to catch these things so much earlier than waiting the eight to 10 or, or more years. Um, and so I'll, I'll share with people too, like, you know, the thought of if you broke your arm and you waited eight to 10 years before going to the, the doctor, I mean, that would create all kinds of trouble. Um, so, um, so to continue the story and hopefully this is helpful as I, I talk about this, uh, when I do talk about my fear of vomiting with schools, it's kind of fun to see because you can see the squirmingness and the, the people that really do struggle with throwing up. And what happened for me is um, it would consume me. At times it would be better, but at times it would really be worse. But what really helped me was when I finally threw up. And it was years and years before I threw up. And I think I was, I think I was a sophomore or a junior in high school. I was at a track meet and I remember feeling nauseated before running the 200 meter dash at the end of the meet. And I told my coach and he told me to lie down on my back with my feet up against a wall. And I did it. <laughs> I don't know if that was the best advice. Um, but then I, I, when it was time, I got up and went over and got in the starting blocks and I ran the 200 meter dash and when it was over, I just, I threw up. I remember I threw up everywhere in the grass. And then I think I made it for kind of the second round to a, a garbage can. And I threw up everywhere. And so it was this kind of big, glorious, just throwing up and throwing up in front of a lot of people. A lot of people saw it. I remember in the stands, you know, afterwards, my family and family friends were all talking about it. But so it was this interesting thing where my worst nightmare happened. The thing that I'd been terrified of for years, it actually happened. And it was sucky. I didn't like it. It was very unpleasant. Nobody really likes throwing up, but I handled it. It was like, oh, that was it. That was, that was the worst it was. And, and really from that moment, it made this shift like, oh, if that happens again, that would suck. I don't like that. I don't want that to happen, but I can handle it. And so the anxiety really went away and, and I mean, I've never liked throwing up, but as the years have gone on, I've gotten so much more comfortable with it and, and I can face it. I can handle it. And I'll still have those feelings of nausea that might come up and even, you know, seeing other people throw up or talking about throwing up. And so as you're listening to me talk about throwing up, you might notice those feelings come up for you, but I'm just so much more okay with it. Like, sure. I feel nauseated now. Um, and maybe I really am sick. And so the nausea is part of that, or maybe it's just my anxiety acting up. But even though this is unpleasant, I don't like it. I can handle it. And so that's the shift that, um, I mean, last time, last episode, we talked about exposure work and that's the shift that we're always wanting you to make with anxiety is to go from that kind of rigid place of, Oh, I can't handle this. It's too big. It's too scary. It's overwhelming to, I can face this. I can handle it. It might be big. It might be sucky. It might be painful. It might be uncomfortable, but, but I can handle this. And when people make that shift, that's when the anxiety tends to go away. And so that's, that's something that I'm really actually grateful for. In some ways, I'm grateful that I 
you know, had all those years of high anxiety and the, the fear of throwing up. Um, cause that really helps me first empathize with clients, but then also help guide them through that process of being able to face your fears and doing the things that you, um, don't want to do. They're counterintuitive, but are really helpful. And so, um, and it was a similar thing with panic attacks. Those went away after I got to that place of, okay, I don't like panic attacks, but whatever, here they come, let's do this. And then they didn't really come. The anxiety would increase a bit, but it never folded over on itself and became a panic attack. And then it was a similar thing with OCD. And this was a, you know, a longer process and something that lasted, you know, into my twenties. Um, but I made more and more conscious decisions that I'm not going to engage in those compulsions and let the anxiety come. And I've actually, in some ways, just so embraced that tension of being able to sit with something that's uncomfortable uh, that sometimes people get frustrated with me because I, I, I'm too much sitting in that ambiguity and I'm, I'm, I'm too much just being okay with feeling anxious that I'm not maybe acting or moving or, or helping someone in the way that I should. So, so I've, I've swung in that direction of, of, oh, I'm, I'm very much okay with the anxiety. Now, I think I'll, I'll share more about my history with mental health in the hopes that that's helpful for you. And if this is helpful, then yeah, keep listening. And uh, if it's not helpful, then of course, turn it off or go find something else or tune into the next episode. So anxiety was really prominent early in my life, in my early adolescence. And then like for a lot of people, it did start to turn into depression. And part of that was, I think, just the exhaustion that can come with being anxious so much of the time. But part of it for me was what I mentioned with me being so closed off. And and at least in my family system and the way that I perceived the world and the fact that there was danger... And the fact that I was a man and grew up, you know, in the kind of that male culture, I, I thought like, well, I, I, I don't want to be weak. I don't want anyone to know about my struggles. So I'll keep them very guarded, very closed off. And so I do remember my mom, of course, knew and knew that I was struggling. And I remember one conversation when I was, I don't know, maybe 16 or 17. And she had known for a while that I was really struggling. And I remember her saying like, oh, we should have taken you to therapy. We should have gotten you help. And I remember having the experience of like, yeah, that would have been really nice. And then both she and I kind of, I think we're colluding in the thought, well, that was a past thing, but I'm okay now. I don't, I don't need therapy now. Um, and, and so of course that was a misfire on both of our ends. And if I could have gone back, I (laughs) would say, "Oh, oh, mom, I still do. Let's, let's get me some therapy now. There's still a lot a lot going on that I'm, I'm struggling with. So I think the anxiety and, and the kind of the, the mental health, the damage that that did to me over the years, but then also being so closed off and not opening up uh, really kind of led me into the depression. And, and so, I mean, I grew up uh, in the LDS church, the Latter-day Saint, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint. So the, the Mormon church, and I served a, a mission when I was 19 and 20, I lived in Chile for two years. And that's when my depression really, really got bad. And I didn't even know it. I, I remember coming back from my mission. So I would have been 21 years old. And it was like a month or two after I got back from that, that two-year mission. And 
it was, I think one of my college textbooks, or it was a book that I picked up off of a shelf at home and it had a list of the uh, symptoms of depression. And I remember reading through the list and going, oh, 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 because most of them were, were hitting for me. And then I recognized that, oh, on my, my mission, when I was in Chile, I was really depressed. And if I start to look back, I was, I was, it was starting you know, in my later adolescence. And there were those feelings of shame, that excessive shame and guilt, the sense that I'm not good enough. And there must be something maybe wrong with me, something inherently flawed. There was definitely uh, some difficulties concentrating. I had some struggles with appetite. I had struggles with sleep. And at least on my mission where I just, I wanted to be sleeping all the time. And I couldn't because that wasn't part of the program, but Oh, but it just was so appealing because when I was sleeping, I would escape both the anxiety and those depressed feelings for a while. And then I did start to develop thoughts of suicide and self-harm. And at least for me, and so I, I probably should have, you know, the trigger warnings and should have maybe started this episode with that. Um, cause this can be really tough for some people to, to hear, um, but for, for me, for me, I, I never developed any plans, but it became a, a daily thing. And I was in so much emotional pain that I would think about it and there was some appeal to it. And, um, and I remember, so we have companions, someone that we go around with. And I remember, I mean, he knew that I was struggling <laughs> and, uh, cause I, I would just, I was not functioning very well. And, but yet I, I, of course, I couldn't really open up and talk about things. I, I didn't know how to do that. So I was all wrapped up and tangled inside of me. And, and, and that, of course, led to more and more of that thought of, I'm just a bad person. I'm a bad missionary. I'm, I'm not good enough. Um, but I remember having one kind of conversation at night as we were going to sleep. And I didn't mention the suicidal thoughts, but I, I did mention that I was struggling. And, and I, don't, I, I, of course, didn't know that I was depressed. Um, and I remember there was some kind of relief to that. Um, but then I also have a clear memory that it didn't seem like he knew what to do with it. And at least in my perception, he was kind of glad when those few moments of conversation were done and he and I could kind of go back to pretending that things were all okay. Um, so that, so that was an unfortunate thing, but again, something that now I'm really grateful for, cause that, that really helps me be able to empathize with people that are going through depression. Um, and it's something that showed up again, you know, now and then throughout my life. But what was really helpful for me was when I was 22 years old, I, I'd already been studying psychology for a bit as an undergraduate. And I finally went to the counseling center at my college to meet with someone. And this was a hard thing to do. And even though I was studying psychology and I was at the time, I was really wanting to do graduate work and do therapy. So I liked the idea of therapy, even though I'd never done it. And I do remember sitting in the waiting room at my college and just being so scared that what if somebody I know is here and what would they think about me? And so all that stigma was so much a part of me. And, um, and then I remember finally the, the therapist, um, Gerilyn Vorkink was her name. She came out and she got me and we went back and at least for me, it was a wonderful first session. I mean, I was finally opening up and talking about things. And here is this therapist who was empathizing and could handle what I was talking about. And I remember leaving that session 
feeling like I was walking on clouds. I was like, this is amazing. And so, of course, it was one of the reasons why I was wanting to study psychology. I think I could tell there was something about therapy, something that I was so missing in my life. And so that that was a really formative experience and really was helpful with me uh, being able to make the changes that I wanted to make. And of course, that was, I think, really helpful with me then developing this career where now I, I do focus mostly on college students and I focus a lot on anxiety concerns and I find it really, really meaningful to be able to help people and, and help people that are oftentimes stuck in the same way that I was stuck. And so my anxiety concerns for the most part are a thing of the past. And when my anxiety comes now, I'm so much more in the place where I'm just grateful for it. Like, oh, thank you for showing up. I'm going to give this class. I'm going to take this test or I'm, I'm facing something really difficult and anxiety, you're helping me. I appreciate the energy you're bringing, that tension. I appreciate that my heart's beating a little faster and I, I really am grateful that you're showing up. And I've learned to trust more and more that as I really welcome you, anxiety, you will leave me alone for long periods of time when you're, you're not needed. And I can really relax and rest and recover. And I can trust that you'll show up again when, when you're needed. And I can trust that we can play around and, and you'll show up. And sometimes you'll show up and you're unwanted, even though I need you. Or sometimes you'll show up and I don't need you, um, but we can play around and and and, and have a, a a conversation, so to speak, if we want to really personify the anxiety and be able to say, well, what's going on? What what am I anxious about? Um, am I feeling some unpleasant emotion that I really want to avoid, or or is there some real danger? And that's one of the things that uh, has been helpful to recognize. Oh, I think there actually is something that's really dangerous, and maybe it's not a danger to my life. But, oh, maybe to my finances or or maybe there's a danger here that, oh, if we keep doing this with our children, they might develop in a way that's not helpful. And, um, so the anxiety can I, I can really alert me to things that I wasn't necessarily queuing into before. And I'm, I'm sharing these things with the intent that as you're listening, hopefully there's more space that's opening up inside of you. Oh, wow. Yeah, maybe I could have more of a relationship with my anxiety in that way. I'm grateful for it. I'm glad. I'm excited when it shows up. And then it will actually leave me alone for hours and hours and on end. So I can really rest and recover. And hopefully as you listen to this, and if you've listened to all three of these podcasts, you're getting a better sense for why I like the podcast title, Your Anxiety Playground. Because I'd love it when you tune in and listen to me talk, or I mean, when there's live consulting going on or other guests that you feel more and more of that sense of empowerment and freedom and that sense of being able to play with your anxiety. And I think that's one of the biggest things that can help you get unstuck from a relationship with your anxiety where you feel really maybe a victim to it or it has too much power. Or you're really entrenched and it's really rigid and it's, it is a really big, scary thing that's overwhelming. But to be able to have more and more experiences where not only is this not overwhelming, but I can play around with this. I can have fun with this. So I think we'll, we'll end the episode at this point. I, of course, have a lot more stories, a lot more I can share about me and my journey with anxiety and other mental health concerns. And I hope to do that throughout the, you know, the duration of the life of this podcast. And of hope, I hope, of course, to get a lot more stories in the 
the podcast of people like you that want to call in and have some live consulting or other other guests. Because I do think being able to hear other people talk about their anxiety is one of the best things. It's one of the reasons why I love group work and I love anxiety in group work. Because there's so much vicarious learning that can happen as you see other people and some of the similarities that you have with them, but then also some of the differences. And, and so it's a really powerful thing to be able to witness somebody being open and vulnerable and, and talking about their struggles. And especially when those line up with the struggles that you are having. And as always, this is not therapy. And so if you're needing therapy, please go and find it and find someone that can help you. And uh, I am curious how this is landing on you. And so feel free to shoot me an email or, or leave a review and let us know how this is impacting you. I'd really, really like to know that. And of course, let us know if there's things that you would like in this podcast. And we'll see if we can make that happen. Hope you have a wonderful day and would love to connect with you again in our next episode. Take care.